you. It's good to be back with you again. It's been quite a while since we were last with you, so we're not complete strangers to the congregation here. Very happy to be here. <clears throat> this uh, series on church planting is something that's been close to my heart. It's not something that I ever foresaw in my own future as I grew up on a farm out in Oregon. <clears throat> but it was in God's plan for us. And so this journey for us has led us through Central America and then to New York City, where we never, ever thought we would live. But here we have been, and it has been a wonderful journey. I tell people that if Hinduism's doctrine of reincarnation were true, you heard the word if, right? I don't want you going out saying that I believe in Hinduism uh, reincarnation, but if it were true... I would like to be reincarnated as a cross-cultural church planter all over again because it has been such a wonderful journey, so fulfilling. <clears throat> um, on the table in the entryway, I brought along some of my favorite books or booklets or pamphlets on three topics. One would be on evangelism, one is on disciple-making, and the other is on church planting. And so you can browse and, to your heart's content. And... Uh, then, in these various sessions, I want to give opportunity, if I don't talk too long in each session, for you uh, for a Q&A question. Actually, Q&R, which is different from Q&A. Q&A is a question and an answer. Q&R is a question and a response. Response may be, I don't know. All right? That's a wonderful question, but I'm just not sure. So it'll be Q&R rather than Q&A. Okay. <clears throat> Now, just to whet your appetite, first of all, let's go to the church planning passage, 1 Corinthians 3, reference was made to it. That's where we get the nomenclature or the vocabulary for church planting when it comes to starting new churches. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I will begin a reading from verse 5. <clears throat> This evening, what we're looking at is uh, to whet your appetite, to consider church planting, and what were some of the core factors in Paul, in his ministry in church planting. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, and the context here is a problem in the church at Corinth. There was division, there were factions there, some were more inclined toward Paul, others toward Paul, Peter, others toward Apollos, who was a gifted speaker, and so on. And then out of that, we have this uh, teaching on starting or planting churches. Who then is Paul, verse 5, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So Paul uses several images here. One is the image of plants, 
and fields. He says the local church is like a field. He says, God gave me special grace and wisdom to plant churches. And he did that all throughout the Roman Empire. But then he also uh, uses the image of a building, a foundation and a building that's being built on it. He says the local church is like a building. And so some lay the foundation and others come along and build on top of it. Some people plant the seeds, get the seeds started, then others come along and cultivate and water and help to grow it up. In other parts of the New Testament, he uses other images like a, a body or a bride or a family. But here he uses these two, a plant, a field, and a building. So church planting is helping new churches get started. <clears throat> now, just to help you think, I know you live in the Bible Belt, and you think, well, there are already churches on every corner, including a corner not far from us here. All right? Don't we have enough churches already? Well, in this book, uh, The American Church in Crisis by David Olson, he did a study on 200,000, a database of over 200,000 churches in America from the year 2000 to the year 2005. So these statistics are somewhat dated. But uh, I'll put this back on the table so you can check your own county and see if it's growing or declining in church attendance. But for example, putting all Christian churches together, including Catholic churches, which I know is kind of a stretch, but for us, but in that five-year period in Tennessee, statewide, there was a net decrease in church attendance of 1.9%, 2%. All right? So... Let's take a look at how the Catholics fared in that same five-year period. They declined by 5%. Okay? Now, the mainline Protestant churches, that would be Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Anglican or Episcopalian, uh, the ones that baptized the infants, <clears throat> Reformed Church as well, they declined in that same five-year period by 5.6%. So every year, they decline by 1%. Thank you. Now, what about the born-again churches? That would be like Baptists and Anabaptists, Mennonites, and Charismatic Pentecostal, and Community Bible Churches, and so on. They declined by 0.9%, almost one full percent. So... That now, of course, is uh, 16 years ago. Do you think it has increased since then? I really have my doubts, at least looking at our nation as a whole. Now, <clears throat> coming out of that book, this is what he says. On any given weekend in America, 88% of Americans will not go to any church. That's almost 9 out of 10. 77% of Americans have no life-giving connection to a local church. On any given weekend in America, 91% will not attend an evangelical church, a church that preaches the new birth. If you would take all of the unchurched people of America and put them in one country by themselves, <clears throat> it would be 190 million people. The fifth most populous nation in the world. Now, recently in another source, I don't remember the source, an updated statistic is the unchurched population in America now currently is at 195 million people. Now, some of those people, of course, would say they're Christian, or they would, have, they would say they, they're Baptist or Methodist or whatever, but they don't go to church. They're unchurched. 
Now, another source that I read, and this goes back further, but I'm certain it has not improved back in the 80s, which for some of you is a long time ago. But there they were saying, if you look at all of the churches in America and you calculate the total seating capacity, what's the seating capacity of your church here? Do you know, Tony? If it's all full, about 120. Okay. So if you do that with all of the churches in America and you come up with the number, what's the seating capacity of all the American churches put together? If, if on a certain Sunday morning, all of the Americans woke up saying, I gotta go to church, what percent could actually have a seat in a church? Back then, it was 12%. So, did you know, if I recall right, the net change in the number of churches per year in America is like 1,000 or 2,000 churches decreased in the total number of churches in America. Some of those are being bought up by Muslims to turn them into Muslim, Muslim mosques. So, the largest, the fastest growing religious block in America currently are the nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, those who would identify themselves as not affiliated in any religion. That's the fastest growing population. So, brothers and sisters, we are sitting and shopping and driving about in one of the greatest mission fields of the world, right around us. Maybe it's not quite as stark here in Tennessee as it is in New York City. Brooklyn, I think there's only 8% of the population goes to a, a Christian church on Sunday. In Manhattan, 2%. So our, our country, we wonder sometimes why we are in such a vortex, a whirlpool of degradation, of perversion, spiraling downward, seemingly many times out of control. And it's because we're losing, as a country, the fear of God and a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so it should not shock us when lost people act like they do. Lost people do what they are because they are what they are, lost. But we expect them to act Christianly. But why should they if they are not Christians? And so that's why church planting is so vital. I hear that you are in serious conversation about planting another church. When I heard that, and Verlin talked to me, I said, I can't miss that. These folks need to be encouraged. So I'm here to help rev up your engine if it's already gotten started, right? <laughs> and uh, just encourage you and maybe give some, a few practical suggestions and maybe some lessons from mistakes that we have made over the years. Now, for this evening, Why? Should we plant churches? Do you have your notes there <clears throat> so you don't fall asleep on me? So if, um, if sometime during the lesson I ask, let's all stand for a moment to read the next verse or something. It's probably because I saw some eyes glazing over somewhere, but I'm not going to look in your direction, I promise. <laughs> I'll look somewhere else, right? Okay, and so don't be afraid to raise your hand, ask questions, or to have questions at the end of, of my session as well. First, Here, I'd like to give you 10, I think, good, solid reasons why we should plant churches. Number one, the way the early church applied the Great Commission was by starting new churches. All right, so we come to the end. Uh, You folks who are just coming in, did you pick up some uh, notes to take notes with? Uh, I have you take notes. Do you know why? Because they tell us that when people don't take notes, they only 
forget 90% of what they heard. But if they take notes, then they only forget 80%. Okay? So I'm trying to help us to uh, double the amount of retention here. Okay, so number one, we, uh, we plant churches because the early church applied the Great Commission by starting new churches. So when you come to the end of the four Gospels, each one of them has a unique perspective on the Great Commission. And Matthew's perspective is go and make disciples. Mark's perspective is you do it by announcing the gospel to every person. Luke's perspective is here's what you talk about when you go. And then John's perspective is how you go when you go. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. Go like Jesus. And then in Acts, he says the power for doing it when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But when we watch those early Christians, so Jesus went back to heaven. We just celebrated his resurrection, soon the ascension coming up. What did the disciples do when they received the Holy Spirit? They went out and started talking about Jesus. And wherever they did, some people accepted the message. What did they do with the people who accepted the message? Did they say, God bless you, be warmed and filled, read your Bible? No, they gathered them together in groups of believers, which we call churches, right? Assemblies, gatherings of brothers and sisters. And so the Great Commission was understood by the apostles to include starting churches. Now, there's another reason why we know we must start churches. When Jesus said, go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, there are some of the commands that you can't do all by yourself. They're what we call the one another's, right? Forbear with one another. Be long-suffering with one another. Uh, Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. These all presuppose another person. It means life together. And so the way we obey the one another's is by gathering people together and teaching them to do the same. Number two, we should plant churches because new small churches grow and assimilate new persons more easily than can older established congregations. So people who study missions, who study church planting and so on, have said... Uh, This is a near quote from Peter Wagner, who is a professor at Fuller Seminary in California, a professor of uh, missions and church planning. He said, by far and away, the most effective and efficient means of fulfilling the Great Commission given on the earth is by planting new churches. Planting new churches. Now, just stop and think, for example... Some of you may have had experiences of participating in a church, let's say a church of 200 or a church of 300, let's say, a church of 300 people. Some of you may have had the uh, privilege of participating in a church of 30. Very different dynamics, a church of 300, a church of 30. Let's suppose the church of 30 says, this year, let us all befriend some unchurched people, and let's set the goal of growing by adding 10 more people this year. Say 30% growth, all right? But for a, a big church to do that, a church of 300, they would have to add how many? Pardon? Or 100? if we're going to do the same amount, say, of a group of 30. But for a church that size to add that many people, 90 to 100 people, they'll probably have to do a building program. They're going to have to get money together and get permits and all this kind of stuff. This is a massive thing. But for a church of 30 to add 10 more people is not heroics. Plus, those new people, they, we, we need them. We want them, and we have space in our schedules and in our relationships to include them. Whereas with a big church, a massive church, it's great if they come. If they don't, we'll keep right on going. If they do, that's good. And so it's not so easy to assimilate new people 
in a large church and make them feel like they are needed and wanted. Number, and by the way, church growth studies also show the older the church gets, the less likely it is that it will plant another church. So, the younger the church, the greater the potential for it to start another church. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems sort of backwards. You would think big little churches look at big churches and say, oh, they've got a lot of people they can spare. But you know what big churches say? Oh, we have a lot of positions to fill. We have a lot of committees that have to get work done. We can't let these go. We need them. And we have a building program to pay off. And on and on it goes. And so <clears throat> the older the church, the less likely it is to get another church started, unless there's a change of vision, a change in the hearts of the leaders, <clears throat> the key people in the church. Number three, <clears throat> Church planting is necessary for a denomination to survive. Church planting is necessary for a denomination to survive. In one source I read, the author says this. It comes out of a study of growing and declining denominations. Like there are some denominations in this country that are losing hundreds of thousands of members per year. And those church officials, I don't know how they don't get it. The handwriting's on the wall. You can't go on like that forever. Here's what these authors said. Every denomination in this study that reported an increase in membership also reported an increase in the number of congregations. Every denomination that reported a decrease in membership also reported a decrease in the number of congregations. So, drawing a conclusion from that is, if a denomination really does care about its values and vision and its survival, it must be serious about planting new churches. And so... <clears throat> You know, I, I just ask us, as part of the Anabaptist movement, this wonderful treasure that has been given to us through the suffering and dying of people 500 years ago, do we care if this really continues? If we don't, just keep doing business as usual. And at some point, the deaths will outnumber the births, and we will decline and go extinct. But if we really care that this vision of how we approach the New Testament and how we walk out and live the clear commands of Scripture, we must be busy about planting new churches. Um, two years after the first baptisms of the first Anabaptists, that, those first baptisms happened in 1525, January of 1525. Uh, it'll soon be 500 years. We're just shy, four years short of 500 years. So two years later, 1527, the leaders of Anabaptist congregations, remember, they are on the move because they have to run to, sur to survive, being burned and drowned and, and imprisoned and whatnot. But they managed to call together a conference. They called it a synod, a conference. <clears throat> and uh, they began to discuss issues of concern to them as leaders. And one of them was, how are we going to evangelize the whole of Europe? Imagine that, two years beginning into the Anabaptist movement. There were like 60 men. They had called it a missionary synod, a missionary conference. And they actually laid plans for who would go to Poland, who would go to Prussia, and so on, two by two. <clears throat> and um, they also began discussing what's to be done about the red men in the New World. Because the news was just filtering back 
into Europe about there being red men in the New World. Remember, in 1492, finish it, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So this is only eight and uh, 20, 35 years later. So, and the news didn't get around like it does today as quickly. So after that meeting, and they had laid plans who would go where, within two years, all but two or three of those men were dead due to martyrdom. And so the, con the name of the conference was changed from the Missionary Conference to the Martyrs Conference because so many of those men died. That zeal for witnessing, for planting churches. There was one man, Hans, I think it was Hans Hoot, an itinerant preacher. It is said that he probably baptized himself about 10,000 people across Europe into the faith. So, <clears throat> if we really care about this heritage, about these values, these beliefs, we must get serious about planting new churches. You know, in Britain, which used to be the missionary sending nation and church of the world, England, with people like George Mueller, hearing of his name, and Hudson Taylor, and others. The nation upon which, they used to say, the sun never set. The British Empire. Do you know right now how many, what percent of Britain's population goes to church on Sunday? Three. And the majority of those are immigrants. We must, we must get serious about planting churches. Business as usual won't do it, folks. It takes more than just having babies. Important as that is, that's very important. Very important to raise up our children and young people in the faith. But we must be proactive in sending people out to plant new churches. Number four, <clears throat> We must plant churches because more people can participate, more gifts can be discovered, and more workers can be developed. <clears throat> so in a little church, everybody has to work. Everybody has to do something. It's all hands on deck. You might not feel like you're gifted at it, but you've got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And you discover that when you're doing it, God gives gifts. And... And you feel ownership in the church. And you care about it. And you've got to show up because you have a job to do. You can't just say, oh, I can't lead singing as good as the young man that did it here tonight. Uh, let's see. What's your name? Justin. Are you a Yoder? Are you Dean's son? I thought so. Okay. You did very nicely. And so as the church gets bigger, we begin to, begin to specialize more, and then we begin to lean more on those who are more gifted and say, I can't do it like Judson. It would be a flop if I do it. So, <clears throat> so uh, in a small church, in a church plant, more people can participate. And I'm of the opinion, I can't point a verse to you, a verse in this, I'm of the opinion that at new birth in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives a gift or gifts to the new believer, but later on, he may also give additional gifts, either for a temporal time or a permanent time, as needs arise. So you're in a church plant situation, and there's a need for people to teach the Word of God. The Lord can give you a gift in that setting for that situation that you didn't have before. You say, well, how will I know, though? What if I try and I just mess up? Then they won't ask you to do that anymore. They'll say, he's obviously got a different gift. <laughs> Don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> just try. <laughs> so, <clears throat> okay. And uh, that's how we discover gifts, because gifts are tools with which to work, not primarily for our happiness. They are primarily for the good of the others. The Bible says so. The Spirit gives gifts for the common good, for the edification of all. All right, and more workers are developed. We learn to serve the Lord by serving. We learn to work by working. 
you will learn to teach by teaching and to preach by preaching and to lead singing by singing by leading singing and to clean by cleaning and many other things to serve by serving number five church planting is a good way to reach ethnic minorities ethnic minorities I don't know if you have any other ethnic groups in this area I'm assuming you have Afro-Americans in the area do you yes or no okay do you have any Hispanics in the area yes or no okay do you have any Indians who have come to buy gas stations yes or no I know <laughs> okay yes what are you doing about them what is are what you have a responsibility for them now there I've this is my theory that in every ethnic group there is a minority that loves culturally mixed churches some people are wired up like that they like to try new foods they like to try new things and learn new languages most people don't birds of a feather love to flock and worship together people love to worship in their heart language most people do in their heart culture not all and there are some who can be blended into a congregation that has one primary cultural group some can they can marry in or they can uh, other ways as well uh, but most people will prefer to worship in their own heart language and culture and I don't think I really I really don't think we should just uh, sniff at that and say well that's just being carnal why because when John Apostle John looked forward into heaven it says he saw a multitude around the throne and what did he notice he saw some from every tell me tribe and nation and tongue it looks like not everybody will speak English there it looks like not everybody will be the same color there it looks like not everybody will be dressed alike there God loves diversity we can see that in the plant kingdom in the animal kingdom in the terrain we can see in the flower God loves diversity and he loves diversity in people too and so uh, in church planting to try to win and incorporate people from very diverse backgrounds it can happen in some cases but not in the majority of cases especially if another language is involved so it's not let's let's uh, not diss ourselves you know what diss means to disrespect and say oh we Mennonites just have a problem well we obviously have problems we have more than one problem but to think that we're the only ones that have trouble with incorporating people no Korean churches have a very difficult time incorporating Afro-Americans. Hispanic churches have a very difficult time incorporating Chinese. Chinese people have a very difficult time incorporating Native Americans. Why? Because people love to worship and relate, usually in their own culture and language. So church planting is a great way to reach ethnic other ethnic groups now we never should uh, say that people can't come to church who are from a different cultural group we should welcome them we should try to understand them we should try learning some more languages Americans are language learning lazy we we're quite proud of English and we think the whole world should wake up and speak English but people love their own language so we should work at incorporating people into our churches make them feel welcome do all we can to understand them but remember that the most effective and efficient way to reach ethnic minorities is to plant churches among them and raising up leaders from among them so <clears throat> that's number which number is it number five okay just checking see if you're awake all right and you are number six it is uh, by the way one more uh, uh, statistic here two of them about ethnic minorities did you know that in the US 
currently there are over 160 distinct languages being spoken regularly. Did you know that one out of every 13 homes in America speaks a language other than English? And it's not primarily Pennsylvania Dutch either, although some are. Okay, it's other languages. In, in our part of the world, in New York City, it's even higher than that. So we need to take these distinctions very seriously. Um, you could jot down there a passage, Acts uh, 17, 24 to 26. Acts 17, 24 to 26. <clears throat> uh, I don't know if you, what you think about the immigration problem on the southern border. And I'm not going to ask you uh, what, your, what you think the president should do about that. I don't want to get into trouble, right? But here's what I want you to notice. Look what God says about the reason for immigration. Acts 17, 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Notice, God is personally involved in the movements of the peoples of the earth, their immigration patterns, where they go, where they live, and this is the reason, so that they may grope for him and seek for him, and feel after him and perhaps find him because he's not far from any one of us. So that Hispanic that you rub shoulders with or you stand behind in the checkout line, that Indian uh, Sikh that we got gas from, his store on our way here, that uh, whoever it might be that you bump into, God was involved in them coming here to your communities so that they could find him, so that you would cross paths with them and share the gospel with them. That's the reason. And so really, folks, as Christians, I know there are different ways of looking at the whole immigration issue and how to legalize people and so on. That's a different issue. We as Christians ought to look at it as a missions goldmine. God is bringing the peoples to us so that we can reach them for him. So that we can start churches among them. So that we can make disciples of them so they will do the same. We had a, uh, a man years ago named uh, Wilson. I don't remember his last name. He was my age. He lived in the uh, apartment building beside us, four stories high, 30 apartments in that building altogether. Anderson is his name, Wilson Anderson. He was from Dominican Republic. Very friendly guy. And uh, our buildings are right beside each other. And so we got to talking with each other. And, and one time I gave him a Jesus video cassette uh, to take with him as he went back to visit his relatives in Dominican Republic. And so he did. And he showed it to people there. And then sometime later, he told me he's going again, and I gave him another one, or maybe by then it was a disc, a CD, DVD, and he took it. And that happened several times. And then one day he told me, he said, you know, I've showed that so many times, I think I could recite the whole thing by memory. And then one day I discovered he had died either that day or the day before, 49 years of age with a heart attack. His widow still lives beside us. But the potential that there is, what I'm trying to illustrate, when we reach out and take the initiative to the people around us, they have connections where we'll never go. Or maybe we will. Who knows? 
But we know this, God arranged the times and boundaries of where people will live so that they may seek for him and feel for him and perhaps find him because he's not very far away from them. And he uses us to do that. Number six, it is a field of ministry with few competitors. There'll always be plenty to do. So you don't have to worry about running out of work with this one. There is so much to be done. And I hope I whetted your appetite by those early statistics at the very beginning. And by the way, any of you who have Canadian connections, Canada is in even worse shape than we are. 100 years ago, 120 years ago, Canada was 25% born-again population. Now it's down to like 8%. You see what's happening. So... <clears throat> Number seven, church life becomes more interesting when you have growth goals <clears throat> and new people coming into the church. It's rather like a family when they have a new baby and it just kind of turns everything upside down and you have to find your new normal again, and there, but there's so much joy there and gladness. And church planting is like that. Uh, you have goals, you want to grow, you're praying for your neighbors by name, you're looking for ways to befriend them, you think of activities you can do to which you can invite them, and it's just so interesting that when your neighbor comes in, oh, hey, everybody, my neighbor came to church. Yes, please be friendly to him, be nice to him, right? So he'll want to come back again. And uh, it's, it's great. Here's this person we've been praying for. So I have a neighbor, he hasn't come to church yet, okay? He lives down the block from us. And Reagan and, and uh, I've forgotten your name, sorry. Uh, Marlon, <laughs> just so you don't forget it, okay? So sorry for the repetition, Reagan and Marlon, okay? So half the block down, half the down, way down the block from us, there's a house there where there's been a lot of darkness for a lot of years. That guy knows so many people. He's from, uh, he's Afro-Guyanese from Guyana. And, but the problem is on weekends, he would have these rowdy parties till five or six in the morning. And the music, a todo volumen, it just ramped up and we could hear it. Boom, 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 through the night. Sometimes a Sunday morning we'd get up and there would be drunk people right in the intersection. We're right on the corner, right in the intersection, fighting with each other, women with women, men with men, right out in the middle of the street. It was awful. And I mean, I don't know if they paid off the police or what, but the police just drive on by. But you know what? This last year, this gentleman had a very serious heart attack. When he was going into surgery, his doctor told him, you only have a 15% chance of survival. And he was under anesthesia for 13 hours. Oh, the surgery was 13 hours, and he didn't come out of anesthesia until four days later. He, was, he showed me, cut all the way from up there down to here. So I asked him if I could stop by just to pray for him. He said, sure, so I stopped by. And read a verse of scripture, pray for him. <clears throat> Next time, stop by again. Hey, pastor, God, thank you so much. And thank you for praying for me. I'm feeling a little better. And I said this time, I said, now, Andrew, this time you pray for me. I'm praying for you, but you need to pray for me too. Well, I don't know if I can do that. But I, I should have recorded it. The prayers are so interesting of people who don't know how they're supposed to pray. <laughs> it's just so... So amazing. It's like little children trying to talk, right? <clears throat> and now he calls me his pastor. And so this last week I said, hey, Andrew, I'm, if you let me, I'll come again. But this time I want to do it at a time when some of your buddies can be there. He says, sure. So two of his buddies were there. And then another guy that I know that's half drunk most of the time and sometimes fully drunk, he just happened to stagger by and he stopped in too. And so there we were. We read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew 18. And I said, now, guys, I'm going to read it, but after I read it, each person has to give a question or a comment. That's all. So when we got done, I went with each one. 
Okay, Ian, what's yours? He said, I'll pass. Okay, Brian, I know you're new, but what's yours? He said, I'll pass too. Okay, now, Andrew, what's yours? And he gave a great comment. And Tony did too, the guy that was half drunk. And so we had a great conversation. And then I said, okay, now, Andrew, you, you know how we do this. I pray for you, you pray for me. He said, oh, Pastor, you just pray for all of us this time. I think he was a little embarrassed because his buddies were there, right? <clears throat> so I prayed for them. He said, Pastor, can you come back again next week? He said, by the way, if people try to hurt you, does Jesus allow you to defend yourself and fight back or not? And I said, well, Andrew, you know, he says something about that. We'll read it next week. He says, great. So we walked out of there, and Tony followed me, the guy that was half drunk. And we're walking up the street. I'm trying to help him walk straight. And he puts his arm around me. He says, oh, Pastor, he says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. So the thought comes to my mind, could a group of believers be established among those Afro-Guyanese people? Because our church culture is quite different from that. Could it be? I don't know. But this guy is so friendly and knows so many people. And then Tony I told him, you come to my house, I'll show you the rest of the Jesus film. Because I'd shown him the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he says, I'll bring somebody. So he comes staggering to our house this Tuesday. And he, he brought one. He brought Paco. And uh, then he says, I invited all those guys down there at the store. And I don't know why they don't come. It makes me mad. But I tried. I'm going to get them next time. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so it makes life very interesting. <laughs> and you know, some of the insights that people who read the Bible with fresh eyes are very interesting. And the questions they ask, it really makes you grow. And it makes you appreciate what we've received from the Lord and from those who've gone before us. But church life becomes more interesting when you have growth goals, new people coming to the church. Uh, Andrew's not coming yet, but he's welcoming me there. And he's uh, inviting his buddies into it. Number Eight, church planting is an effective strategy for social, local, and national renewal. <clears throat> for national renewal. Now, I'm sure if you observe or listen to the news at all, you're seeing our country is not going in a good direction. Have you noticed that? Has anybody noticed that? Or, is it, or am, am I just imagining that? We are not in a good shape morally and socially as a country. Now, this is not the first time this has happened in history. Back in the 1700s, both Britain and France were very morally degenerate. And one historian I read said, the, the revolution that the French had was an atheistic, a godless revolution. And France has never recovered from that to this day. There are more witches and wizards in France than all the pastors and priests put together. And 80% of French people have never handled or read or touched a Bible. 300 years plus. But that particular historian, whoever he was, said England was ripe for the same kind of revolution, equally as ripe morally and socially as France. But England had something different. England had George Whitfield, who did a lot of preaching in the open air. But not only that, England had Charles and John Wesley. They also preached in the open air, especially John, but John did something more. The ones that got converted, he gathered them together in what he called classes, small groups, to get together for accountability, for prayer, for encouragement, helping each other grow. John Wesley never intended to start the Methodist denomination. He always intended to stay within the Church of England. But this thing just began to grow by leaps and by bounds. It actually jumped across the Atlantic, came to the United States, and those classes grew and became churches. 
And now wherever you go across the United States, you will see a Methodist church. Now the Methodist denomination is in decline. It has become in many parts very liberal theologically. I'm telling you, liberal theology will kill churches. Liberal theology kills denominations, and liberal theology kills missionary motivation. Because if you no longer believe that Jesus is the only way, why put yourself in harm's way? Stay at home and mind your own business and be good. Be nice. Be nice to people. Tell them they're all going to go to heaven. Preach them into heaven after they die. But that's, those are the signs of a dying denomination. But in its day, Methodism was a great tool in the hands of the Lord to transform England and its colonies. Church planting. That's what America needs today. The multiplication of churches who are making disciples who obey Jesus. Because once a culture loses the fear of God, you cannot get enough policemen to keep everybody in line. All, the Bible says, only by the fear of God do people depart from evil. So, for the good of our country, if we care about this country at all, I know we're strangers and pilgrims, but we should care about the countries that we're in. We must plant churches. Number nine, church planting is a vision and challenge big enough for our youth. In Proverbs, without a vision, the people scatter or they perish. <clears throat> so uh, this is a, wonder, a worthy vision. This is something that can challenge our young people, our young families. <clears throat> How old were you, Tony, when you and your family moved here to help with this church plant? Yeah. Look at that. He was still wet behind the ears. 28, right? How old were your children? <clears throat> Look at that. How did you know how to go about planting a church? Had you ever done it before? <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit had. <clears throat> young families, young couples, and not so young. Through this series this weekend, God may be planting some seeds in your heart, your life, for you to one day be involved in a church plant. <clears throat> and then number 10, in church planting... We cooperate with Jesus as he fulfills his promise, I will build my church. Now, he doesn't do it all by himself. He uses people, just like he does in so many other things. So, someplace I picked up this quote, Without God, we cannot. Without God, without us, God does not. Typically. Now, sometimes there are miraculous interventions of God apart from people. But usually, without us, he does not. He uses people. It's a divine human cooperation, like your left foot, right foot. You know, if you're a right-handed person, you have a, right, a dominant right hand and a dominant right leg that you push up with or you take the first step. Okay, God is that dominant partner. We're the recessive. We're the weak partner. But he has chosen, for purposes of his own, to work through us to fulfill his own promise. I will build my church. Now, just a few observations from Paul's strategy, and then we'll start winding down here. <clears throat> How did Paul go about starting churches? Well, number one, churches were established in strategic centers. In strategic centers. Can you name any books of the Bible in the New Testament, the names of which come from strategic centers? Mm -hmm. Ephesians. Corinthians, first and second. Romans. Philippians. Galatia, Galatia was an area, a region. Uh, others? I th was Ephesians mentioned? I think so. Yeah. Colossae was an area as well. <clears throat> There's another first and second. Thessalonians. 
And then Timothy, when he wrote to Timothy, Timothy was in Ephesus. So Paul deliberately chose to go to strategic areas through which there were people flowing for business and politics and military and so on. <clears throat> and then they would multiply out from there. Number two, he made use of team ministry. He didn't do it alone. You rarely find Paul alone in the New Testament. On occasion, alone in a cell, one place in the city, but it's very rare. More often, you'll see his lists of people, greet so-and-so, who was a, a worker with me. Greet so-and-so, who was like a mother to me, and on and on it goes. Greet Aquila and Priscilla, who risked their lives for me, and for whom, to whom the whole church is indebted. So he used team ministry. And that way, it gives continuity, it gives strength, a diversity of gifts. And if somebody has to leave because of sickness or aging parents, there are others to continue on the ministry. All right, number three, congregations were developed by forming core groups, committed core groups, small groups. Number four, he used diverse and flexible evangelism strategies. Sometimes it was one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes it was in the public square. Sometimes it was in a prison. Um, he obviously didn't use the Internet because that didn't happen then yet. But he, he was flexible. He used a variety of ways. One place he started a school, and he would have classes in the, in the off hours when the school uh, location wasn't being used, and he trained people there. Number five, local leaders were chosen and raised up trained and from within the new churches. <clears throat> Number six, and by the way, the passage for that, a good passage for that is Acts 14. I think it's about verse 22 or 24 or something like that, uh, where he came back to one of the cities where he had been run out of town. There had been a group of believers who went back, and they appointed elders from right there to lead that congregation. So that's the goal that we aim for. And number six, he depended on the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, churches can't be started without the Holy Spirit. If you do, it's just a social club. You really need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Uh, you need to cultivate an active fellowship, friendship, partnership, dependency upon the Holy Spirit, just like the Bible says we should in places like Romans 8 and Galatians 6. And then number seven, he suffered be involved in church planning, you have to be willing to suffer. There will be disappointments. There may be betrayals. There may be delays, long delays. There may be fruitlessness, times of fruitlessness. There may be, who knows, we may be facing times of open, overt hostility and persecution and opposition. Now, this, the Bible tells us, is normal for Christians. Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul said in Acts 14, don't you remember I told you when I was with you that we must indeed go through many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of God? This is what shows the watching world if we're the real deal or not. Anybody can be nice when things go well. But what happens when the going gets tough? So even when people won't read your Bible, they're going to be reading you. They may not read your tract. I'm not saying don't try to give tracts, but they will read you and how you react. You're the Bible that they have to watch, to read. <clears throat> and they want to know if you're a fly-by-night uh, group or are you... Here to stay. Are you real? And then number eight, he refused to give up. He just wouldn't quit. You could knock the guy down. You could stone him. You could leave him for dead. You could beat him up into a bloody pulp. And what do you do? You just get up and keep right on going. You couldn't stop him unless you'd behead him or have a lion eat him. One time he says they fought with wild beasts. We don't know the details of that. Sounds scary. He just kept right on. 
Listen, no matter how gifted you are, if you don't continue, if you don't keep on going, it will be all for naught. You've got to keep up. It was, uh, keep on, it was um, William Carey in India. <clears throat> if you haven't read his story, you really owe it to yourself to read it, the stuff that he went through. And he had one time worked on uh, trans, uh, translating a, um, the Bible and had the manuscript. They had gotten printing presses from England, and they had a shop where those presses were, and the manuscript was there, and the place caught on fire and burned it all down. Gone. Like that, along with the printing presses. At the end of his life, <clears throat> he told, I believe it was his nephew, <clears throat> he said, if you ever write about my life, he says, what has been accomplished is not because of genius or gifts, but because of one thing. There's one thing I can do. I can plod. I am a plodder. He would not give up. And that's what you need when it comes to church planting. <clears throat> okay, time to quit. Any uh, question came to mind that you wanted to ask uh, for Q and R? before we pray and uh, go on our way. <clears throat> okay, either your questions have all been answered or you haven't thought about it long enough or are you too shy or you're too tired and you want to get out of here and go home. All right, I don't know which one it is, but uh, one more opportunity. Is there a question? Okay, let's stand to pray. <clears throat> Did you want to have the last prayer, Tony, or should I just... Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Father in heaven, we dedicate this series of five sessions to you, this being the first. We've looked briefly at the needs in our country. We've looked at good reasons why we should seriously consider and be actively engaged in planting new churches. We've just looked very briefly at Paul as a church planter. We admire your work in his life and through his life. And Father, we just pray that through these several days that you will come and talk to us. You'll guide us in our meditation thereafter on our talking with each other <clears throat> clarifying, questioning, pondering, applying. <clears throat> Father, I pray that this congregation will be noted as a church that plants churches that plant churches. I thank you for what very little I heard that they are seriously looking at starting another. I bless them for that, Lord, and I pray you would bless them in it and give them unity and harmony and clarity as they think and pray and plan together. <clears throat> I pray that this journey for them will be such that later on they'll be called upon by other churches to speak out of their experience in having been planted as a church, and then in planting another church. I pray that you will show them how to work in the new church plants to establish a DNA so that church will catch the vision for planting another church. Oh, Father, we pray you'll have mercy on our country and on Canada to the north of us, and that you would raise up many people with a vision for planting churches by witnessing, by making disciples and gathering them together and raising up new leaders. <clears throat> Please, Father, come and do more, much more than what we would dare to ask or imagine. We honor you this evening. Lord, we remember you in what you said. I will build my church, and we are keen on doing all we can, 
all of us together and each of us as individuals to participate in any way we possibly can that you indicate to us for that to happen, for that promise of yours to be fulfilled. Direct us in our conversations with each other. Bring to mind those things we could talk about that would build each other up and encourage one another. This we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, who is the true and faithful witness, the head of the church, the apostle, and the great shepherd, the forerunner of our faith, the great church planter himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>